0: Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. The title of my sermon this morning is "What's," or, uh, is Jacob's Name, and I want to begin with a, f- a famous question about names, what's in a name? This is a question that is posed by Romeo in Shakespeare's famous play, because he's frustrated that his family has a long-standing feud with the family of the woman that he loves, Juliet. But Romeo's frustration actually reveals not the insignificance of naming and of names, but of their importance. That's because names have power. If they didn't, then the last name of Montague and the last name of Capulet wouldn't be a big deal. And it's also why the child's rhyme that says, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me, is actually false. They can, they do. Words hurt, names also at times. So a problem we have as humans is that changing a person's name doesn't necessarily change a person's circumstances. Simply changing the name doesn't change your situation or your character. So, for instance, if we had just sort of taken an eraser and changed Romeo and Juliet's name, the family would still be mad at each other, they'd still recognize each other, the the wrongs that had been committed would still exist. Take, for an example, my dog Nelson. That's right, Nelson. Thirteen years ago, when we got Nelson from the rescue shelter, that was his name. Now, if you've been to my house, you probably know my dog is Rocky, and that's because when we brought Nelson home, we gave him a new name. But Nelson, now named Rocky, had a life before the Henrys' home. And much of our lives for the last 13 years with Nelson, now called Rocky, has been discovering the kind of life that he had before and trying to correct for that or to fix it, if you will. Now when God changes your name, unlike when we changed Nelson's name, it's a little different. And that's what we find in today's sermon from Genesis chapter 32. And so, when we learn about Jacob's new name, this is a third and last sermon in this remarkable character of a person named Jacob. And in this encounter, you're going to discover how Jacob gets his new name, which, by the way, is Israel. Now answering this question, how does Jacob get his new name, is part of one of the most interesting, fascinating, and mysterious stories in the entire Bible. As Dr. James Montgomery Boyce observes, there is no more moving episode in the life of Jacob or perhaps in any of the patriarchs of Genesis. And my main point this morning for you is this, no one leaves an encounter with God unchanged. And as proof of that, Jacob gets a new name. But be warned if true and lasting change is what you're seeking, it will not come cheaply, nor will it come easily. Most likely it will be difficult, and you will experience pain. It might even be terrifying. As C.S. Lewis put it in his Chronicles of Narnia, speaking of Aslan, he is no tame lion. But as dangerous as God is, he is good. And so my hope for you is something similar. In learning about Jacob's new name, we're gonna learn about the circumstances surrounding that name. It comes at a pivotal moment in his life. We're also gonna learn about the unusual manner in which his name is changed. It's quite different than anything else you read in the Bible. And then ultimately, what is the message that his name is intended to communicate, not just to Jacob, but to each one of us in our lives as well? So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. We're gonna ask his blessing on it after I read it. I'm gonna pick up the story in Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. But as, as is the case with these stories in the patriarchs, there's so much more detail here than I can get into In one short sermon on Sunday morning, definitely would encourage you to read, at least read the rest of Genesis 32 today, if not the larger story of 32 through 35. But for this morning, just 32, beginning at 22 to the end of the chapter, the word of the Lord. The same night, he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So far the reading in God's holy word. Let us pray. Thank you God for this life-changing experience that Jacob has had, one that resulted in a number of things, not the least of which is a new name. I pray Lord that each one of us would, even in this message this morning, have an experience with you that changes us personal change, true, lasting change because of an encounter with the living God. And I pray, Lord, that if it is painful or difficult, that you would go with us and enable us and support us in the change that is needed, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, Jacob's name was changed at the perfect moment. The name change comes just at the right time, at a pivotal or perfect moment, in Jacob's life. Let's take a look at our story earlier in chapter 32. Jacob, we find at the end of chapter 31, leaving his father-in-law, whose name is Laban, and entering into the land of Canaan after a sojourn away from home, if we might put it that way, of 20 years. You see, he left Canaan 20 years back and went to Haran to find himself a wife, and he comes to discover that the father of not his just one wife but his two wives is just as much a trickster and a schemer and a plotter and a liar as he is. Jacob has finally met his match. The father of Rachel and Leah, Laban, has connived and contrived to keep his children and grandchildren nearby him and his son-in-law Jacob and all of his hard work for these two decades. And at this point, the Lord has appeared to Jacob and reminds him, Laban does not like you, he will never like you, and he does not have your best interest in mind. Also, Jacob, you promised to return to the land of your inheritance. Now's the time. That's the beginning of chapter 31. Shortly after this, Jacob gets up and he moves his whole family a manner of few days when Laban's out of town. And Laban comes back to find that his entire family has left three days ago. And so Laban gets up and chases after Jacob. You can imagine that he was furious. And he catches them. And if God had not appeared to Laban in a dream saying, do not touch Jacob, don't do anything to him, either good or bad, then Laban surely would have wreaked revenge. But instead, in the meeting, Laban and Jacob work out what is essentially a non-aggression pact between the two families. And they build a tower of stones at some point on the journey, sort of midway between wherever they were and wherever he was going. And they agree to separate and to go their separate ways. Problem one solved. But remember, when Jacob left Canaan 20 years back, he didn't exactly leave under the best terms either. You see, trouble seems to follow this guy wherever he goes. His father Isaac was dying, or he thought he was dying, as it turns out Isaac was going to live for 40 more years after the blessing was exchanged between Isaac and his son Jacob. But Isaac thought he was dying, and so he called Esau to himself, to arrange the transfer of the inheritance. Now, Isaac knew better than this. He knew that the inheritance and the blessing was to go to Jacob, but Isaac preferred Esau, and so he sets up the situation to hand off the blessing to Esau. His wife, Rebekah, hears about it, and together with her son Jacob, they scheme to steal the blessing from Esau. And Esau is furious, and he resolves, on the spot, I am going to murder my brother. Brothers killing one another is a common theme in the Bible if you didn't know that." And so Rachel, and now Isaac comes to his senses, they whisk Jacob out of there, sends him to Haran to uh, Re- Rebekah's uh, brother's house, Laban, to find a wife, and also to, to save his hide. So you can imagine, 20 years later, Jacob is a little concerned about coming back home. The last conversation he had with his brother is, I'm going to kill you. And he wasn't joking. He wasn't exaggerating. And so he sends messengers ahead of him here in Genesis 32 to let Esau know he's back into town and he's rich and he's ready to give up whatever he needs to give up to smooth things over between him and his aggrieved brother. The messengers return with a less than encouraging report. They say Esau is on his way with 400 men of war. So, in other words, all of Jacob's offers and hopes and entreaties and aspirations for you know, Esau, can't we just let bygones be bygones? It's not going to happen. Genesis 32, verse 7. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. That is his response. He's quaking in his boots. He fears for his life. He knows that he is in deep, deep trouble. But what's interesting is he resorts to two seemingly contradictory responses. The first response to his mortal terror is to come up to concoct yet another scheme. I know I'm going to divide my, all of my possessions, all of my Uh, servants, all of my flocks and my herds, and my two families, the family from my one wife and the family from my other wife, I'm going to divide them in two, and I'm going to send them in waves in front of me, and that way I'll know if Esau's really mad at me and he pounces on the first wave, the second wave and me can escape in the other direction. And by the way, we know this is a scheme because who is found in the first wave but his less than desirable wife, Leah, and who's in the second preferred wave, but his favorite wife, Rachel, and her children. So Jacob resorts to another scheme. But the other thing that he does, and I said it's seemingly contradictory, is he utters a prayer beginning in verse 9 of 32. And this prayer by Jacob from 9 through 12 is not only Jacob's best prayer ever, It's, hands down, the best prayer in the entire book of Genesis. The clearest, godliest, humblest, most reverent prayer on the lips of any person in the book of Genesis. O God of my father Abraham, Genesis 32, 9, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, Jehovah, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of all the least of the deeds of your steadfast love. Hear the humility there. All the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you, Lord, said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted for the multitude. This is a tremendous prayer. This is the kind of prayer that you would pray if you were looking for a life-changing, transforming experience with God. And sure enough, that's exactly what Jacob gets. Which brings me to my second point. We see the circumstances surrounding Jacob's name change. He's fleeing one enemy. He's resolved one problem behind him. He turns around. He's entering back into his promised inheritance, and he confronts none other than the murderous, rampaging Esau. He gets on his face. He prays the best prayer he's ever asked in his life. And he finds himself alone on this side of the river. His family and his goods are on the other side of the river. That was part of his strategy. And the text tells us nothing more than a man, an unnamed man, grabs a hold of, his, of, of Jacob at some point after light had fallen. As dark had settled on the land, someone grabs a hold of Jacob in the dark. So who is this? Could it be that Esau sent ahead an assassin to get a hold of him and this is Jacob's life is flashing before his eyes. This is it. This is kind of his final moment on the planet. Could it be some random bandit came upon Jacob and is going to steal his staff and his cloak? Some clues in the passage emerge as to the identity of this stranger as the battle develops. We learn in verse 30 that the that the stranger had the ability to kill him. We learn in verse 26 that the stranger is of such a high status above Jacob that he has the capacity to bless him, and Jacob discovers this, or somehow Jacob knows that the man is in a position to bless him. We learn in verse 28 that he has the authority to change Jacob's name. And he, we learn in verse 29 that when Jacob asks his name, that Jacob supposedly is supposed to have already known what this man's name. Why do you ask my name? Yet strangely, in spite of all of these marks of greatness in this man, verse 25 tells us that the man could not prevail against Jacob in the wrestling match. When we put all this together and then we read the the larger picture of the Bible, there's actually a verse in the prophet Hosea that comments on this text in Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, we discover that the, that, the, that the man is none other than the angel of the Lord, that it is God in the form of a human being in some mysterious way. It's a theophany, a, a revelation of the being of God in a way that human beings can see and encounter and speak to. This has happened already in Genesis. For, exe- for instance, Genesis 18, three strangers appear outside the tent of Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. But unlike in that encounter, this stranger is appearing grasping at Jacob's arm and wrestling him into the dirt. But the battle results in a tie, apparently. And it goes all night. So, I don't know if you've wrestled or if you know a wrestler or grappler, but most wrestling matches go, at least when I was in high school wrestling, there are three three matches of two minutes each. And it ends when the ref blows the whistle. And after two minutes, at least in my case, I couldn't imagine going another two minutes, let alone two more two-minute matches. And Jacob's going, all night long hour after hour after hour i can't imagine what this must have been like and he's wrestling the angel of the lord in this case the whistle that gets blown for this wrestling match is not the ref but it's the sun the text tells us that at daybreak the stranger was realizing that he did not prevail against Jacob at the breaking of the day. That's verse 25. What happens next is, and I say this reverently, nothing less than the angel of the Lord, God himself, cheats. God cheats and defeats Jacob. Take a look. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, my Bible says he cheated. Not really, but... He touched his hip socket, which is somewhere around here. He touches his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. He dislocates his hip. Now, in in a wrestling match, the strongest muscles in your body are your quadriceps and your glutes, and he touches the very point that would be Jacob's pivot point, or his anchor point, in order to continue this wrestling match. And so, As a result, the match is over. The whistle's blown. Jacob has a dislocated hip. What does he do? Jacob says, or the man says, let me go for the day is broken. The whistle's been blown. Your hip's out of joint for crying out loud. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So in my mind's eye, what's happening here is his hip is dangling, you know, by a thread. And so Jacob has got wrapped the man around with the sheer strength of his arms, whatever's left after an all-night wrestling match, and is clinging to the man for dear life, demanding a blessing of this guy who basically, with a touch of his finger, put his hip out of joint. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then the man says to him, What is your name? Now this is a strange way to begin a blessing, but we have learned that the name Jacob means something. Jacob was given his name from his mother's womb as someone who was a trickster. Literally means he is a deceiver. How would you like to have that as your name? He, is there anybody named Jacob in in, in the house? Trickster, deceiver, schemer, plotter. What is your name? It's as if the man is saying, I know something about you, and this blessing that you're seeking is going to address the thing that I know about you, and that you know about you, and that you know needs to change about you. In other words, Jacob, you know what your name means, right? Trickster. Well, I want to hear you say it. Say it. That's right. I own it. My name means trickster. Then the man says in verse 28, No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You see, Jacob has been blessed by God already in his life, multiple times. He's got the blessing from Isaac, God met him at Bethel and he blessed him as he left the land. He was blessed at that point. God spoke to him while he was in Haran, reminded him that he was the heir of the blessing. God even showed up in the, in the form of a band of, of warrior angels at the beginning of chapter 32, reminding him that he was on his side. Jacob has no shortage of blessing, in other words. What Jacob lacks, though, is the temperament to go with the blessing. He lacks that heart change. It's as if, if I may put it this way, Jacob was raised in a Christian home. He went to church all his life. He went to vacation Bible school. He knew the answers to the catechism, but man, he still acted like a, like a, like a pagan. What is your name? Jacob. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So we've seen Jacob's name, his new name, comes at the perfect moment in his life and in an unforgettable manner, this wrestling match, an all-night wrestling match with the divine being. The third point that we come to is that the new name of Jacob, which is the blessing he asks for, carries a powerful message. The old name represents Jacob's base, unsanctified nature. He is a trickster. At every point in his life, when he had an opportunity to trust God and to do things God's way, he got his hands in the pie, he got his hands all dirty, and he saw to it that he could get the outcome that he wanted. Jacob highlights an orientation towards God and life that says, me first. That's what the name Jacob means. It means, I can figure this out. It means, I've got the best idea. Jacob means that I'm going to live my life according to human reasoning, fleshly scheming, or sinful trickery. The new name, though, is different, Israel. At the heart of the name Israel is the word for victory or conquest. And combined with the verb to conquer in Israel is the the word El, which means God. God. And the way that the text explains what Israel means, your your name shall no longer be Jacob, verse 28, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Our text is highlighting in the way that it's phrased here that Jacob has conquered or has had victory with God and with men, but we've already seen that What happened in the story was slightly different than that. God permitted himself to be conquered by Jacob. It's as if this all-night wrestling... I mean, if if the man with whom you're wrestling, by touching your, your hip joint, can put it out of socket, the only reason you've lasted all night with him is because he wasn't using all of his strength. He had one arm tied behind his back, if I may put it this way. It's like a father wrestling with his son on the bed on a Saturday morning. Oh, you got me, you got me, oh, oh, you got me. That's what's going on here. Jacob has conquered God, but who started the wrestling match? Who sought it out? Who initiated the conflict? Jacob wasn't looking for God looking for a blessing. I mean, we have his prayer. Surely we have his prayer. But we find Jacob, before the match begins, alone on his side of the riverbank at night. And God grabs a hold of Jacob. That's interesting, though, isn't it? Because the last time we see Jacob grabbing a hold of someone, it's him grabbing the foot of his brother, his twin brother, as they're coming out of the womb. Jacob is grabbing at people his whole life. Doing it his way. Me, me, me. Mine, mine, mine. Now, now, now. And here we have God. And I can imagine maybe the, maybe the encounter started with this unknown, mysterious man grabbing Jacob's heel. God has laid hold of Jacob. So Israel means God triumphs. And God triumphs over Jacob, but not in exactly the way you'd expect. The meaning of this name is that God triumphs over Jacob, even though the surface of the story has the stranger unable to prevail over Jacob. In the end, the stranger gives Jacob a new name, which is the real victory in Jacob's life. It's as if Jacob, his whole life, has been functioning with his own strength, and God brought him to the end of his own strength, in order to show Jacob that he needed to have God to direct his life. Jacob is about to meet someone who is on a murderous rampage, and he's terribly afraid. This wrestling match and this new name shows him that he's afraid of the wrong thing. The person that Jacob should be most concerned about is not Esau, but Almighty God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Our human enemies are important, but they're not ultimate. Your first order of business is to get right with God. So striving with God can also point to what Jacob is doing his whole life. He's been fighting against God. He's been striving with God, and God keeps getting the victory in those situations. And so God arranges a most unusual situation. As I said, it's an unforgettable uh, manner in which Jacob receives this new name. For the rest of Jacob's life, he will we will find him going back and forth between these new names. It's interesting when Abraham when Abram got his new name Abraham, we never find him referred to as Abram again. But Jacob, when he gets his new name Israel, the story goes back and forth between these two names. I think that's important, and on purpose. Because for the rest of Jacob's life, we will see him going back and forth between the meaning of these two names. You see, the trickster self, his, his scheming, manipulative Jacob self, his inner Jacob, let's say, is continually trying to rear its head. It's continually, through the rest of his life, continually making itself known. But Israel, that God prevails, also is making itself known. Transformation, you see, is a process. There's another aspect to the message of Jacob's new name as well. It's at the end of the passage, it says, 29, Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But the man says, why is it that you ask my name? it's i can i can see the man it's light is just starting to dawn and the features of the man's faith, face are just beginning to emerge in that pre-dawn light you can see him sort of with a half grin why are you asking my name isn't it obvious up until this point don't you realize who you're dealing with are you that dull or dense jacob why do you ask my name and there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, and now when he gets it later on, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Not only does God overcome Jacob's sinful nature in the wrestling match, but Jacob isn't destroyed in the process. There's a word for this, and that's called grace. In conclusion, What's in a name? That's the question that Romeo asks, and while we might be tempted to think in a postmodern age that names mean nothing, the Bible's answer is different. The solution isn't to throw out the whole idea of naming or authority, which is what probably your friends or your neighbors or your colleagues is certainly what the media would suggest. The solution is to do a better job at naming. In other words, the Montagues and the Capulets in Shakespeare's famous love story wouldn't have a problem with one another of their with one of their sons marrying another of their daughters if they hadn't been sinning against each other you see the problem isn't in the name of the montagues and the capulets it's in their sin natures that's what has created the war warring with another human being is not the right way to treat someone who is made in the image of god it is a misuse of the name of god who created them And it is a misuse of their name because they bear his name in all of their dealings and reflects God in a special and in a unique way. The reality is that we all struggle with our names. Abraham's changed name points to his changed destiny. He's going to be a great father of many nations. Jacob's changed name points to the changed disposition that he needs in order to lay hold of the destiny that was given to him through his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. You see, the destiny of Abraham is passed on to Jacob, but he is subjectively, personally unprepared and unable to enter into that destiny in his current state as a trickster of a man. In order for Jacob to become the one who lays hold of the destiny of the inheritance, He must be different. It's interesting that we get Jacob as the third of the three patriarchs. We have Abraham, we have Isaac, and we have Jacob. And Jacob is presented to us, in many ways, as the least ideal of the three. He's the roughest of the bunch. He's a rogue, as Dale Ralph Davis describes him, God's rascal. If you wonder, how is it that God would have chosen someone like Jacob to carry on the promise, and not only that, to be described as the head of the 12 tribes of Israel and essentially the father of the chosen people? From the get-go, Jacob's name has described a personality of someone who is constantly leaving God out of the equation. How ironic, then, that he's the one that God chooses to put at the center of his equation for blessing the world. The only explanation is that God's grace makes the unworthy worthy and qualifies the unqualified. God's mercy equips the ill-equipped and strengthens the weak and makes holy the most profane and unholy man in the story so far. All because of God's grace. And that's what's important about Jacob's new name. It is proof for all time that grace alone overcomes human sin and transforms human nature. So as we go this morning, how can you apply the message to your life? I want to point out, first of all, the importance of Christian baptism. In baptism, we, we do something, which is we submit ourselves to being baptized in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the one name of the three-personal God. And in baptism, therefore, we are submitting to receive God's name, not ours. And I like, for all of its faults, I like the tradition in the Roman Catholic Church that when someone is baptized, they get a baptismal name. There's something kind of cool about that. It's very biblical practice. What it's saying is, it's saying from this moment on, I am a new person. Now when a baby is baptized, that, that baby's transformation is going to be played out, much like in Jacob's life, for, for the rest of our lives. And, and if you're a child who's been baptized, you may be at some point in this story. I'm not sure where. I'm not sure how much of the trickster nature in your life is currently being expressed. But the fact is that you bear the name of God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a purpose for you. But if you haven't come to the moment where you have wrestled with God in whatever way that looks like, you're still operating as if God were not real. Christian baptism and the new name that comes with Christian baptism puts an obligation upon you to live for God. And the transformation that develops can be painful. And it may look like an all-night wrestling match with the Lord, perhaps it looks like some trial in your life, God forbid, a car accident, a broken relationship, the loss of a loved one, being fired from a job, Or maybe you're still under the impression that you can continue with both hands on the wheel with God in the back seat thinking everything's going to be fine. And what those of us who've been there will tell you, if this is you, is it's just a matter of time. As we told our children growing up, it's God's gift to you that you get caught when you're disobeying. Because when we're allowed to get away with things over and over and over again we don't have to face the reality of our lives that we are living a life that is essentially atheistic and Jacob was a functional atheist more or less prior to this point oh sure he had some great experience with God Well, he went on a youth retreat and it was awesome it was a Bethel moment for him but when he came down off of that mountain man it was business as usual you need a new name you need to meet with God. But the second application I want to challenge you with this morning, and it's related to this. If you've had this life-changing experience with God, if you've, if you've met this strange wrestler in the middle of the night who grabbed your heel and you thrashed around in the dirt till the wee hours of the morning, if that's happened to you, if you've been given a new name, you may be wondering, why aren't things different? And the answer is that the transformation that we desire and crave and need is a gradual one. It goes, as it were, by fits and starts. And you make progress one day, and you make backwards progress the next day. But you already have all that you need. This is the point of the prayer in verse 9 of chapter 32. O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. God has given you everything that you need. Your ongoing struggle with your inner Jacob is a sign that he's not done with you yet. Not that he's abandoned you. You see, the life that Jesus has promised his followers is not a life of going from one blessing to the next. In this case, the blessing that you receive comes at the cost of a limp. In fact, one of the commentators said that the limp is the sign of a true saint. When you see uh, an older man or woman limping with their Christian life, you can probably trust them because they've met with God, and they came away changed, not in a way they expected. Jesus says, unless a man gives up his life, he cannot keep it. If you expect to wrestle with God and get the blessing and to walk away striding out like anybody's business, that's a different religion. That's not the Christian faith. The third application I want to make is to parents, and we've been talking about what it looks like to be a modern-day patriarch or matriarch in this series. If you're a parent with a child, or if you have children, your priority is to pass on the blessing to your kids. Now children, you need to recognize that you have a responsibility to receive this blessing. Let's just, for instance, pick whichever patriarch you want to be. You can be Abraham, and your son could be Isaac, you could be Isaac, and your son could be Jacob. You need to see yourself in this story because the story continues, the blessing continues to be passed on by, from parent to child to grandchild and great-grandchild and so forth. Maybe you were just surrounded by family at Thanksgiving. You look around the table and you see lots of people following the Lord, lots of reasons to be thankful, right? But there are some perhaps at the table, and maybe it's you, maybe it's one of your children or a relative who isn't following the Lord. I think there's an appeal here. I think there is a, a call here to wrestle with God for the blessing in your family. See, Jacob at this point has 11 sons. And they have and will cause him no small amount of grief. And by the time he, as, as it says at the end of Genesis, as the time as his gray hair, go, gray head goes down to Sheol, he's going to experience more sorrow at the end of his life than he did at the beginning. Jacob would need to remember that his work of patriarchy, that his work of fathering has really just begun that this wrestling match with God, if I can put it this way, doesn't even hold a candle to the wrestling match he was going to have with his wayward sons. Parents, we can't give up. Your life-changing experience with God, maybe like me, it was in college, maybe it was more recent. That life-changing experience is like the gun of a very long race. It's a marathon. It's a marathon wrestling match to combine the two sports. We have a lot of work to do, and likewise, as a church, we need to wrestle in prayer and wrestle with God to see that God brings forth a blessing in the children of one another's families as well. You see, patriarchy includes taking care or having concern as as a matriarch or a patriarch for other people's kids as well. So this includes the singles or the unmarried in the church because you have a responsibility to wrestle with God for the children of the church. And that doesn't just mean leading the youth group because no one else has time. It means that you're on your face with a ministry of prayer and presence in the lives of the youth of the congregation. We're praying that God would raise up in this generation godly men and women that will carry on the promise that we have passed on to them. And that's gonna take the triumph of grace in each of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we pray now as we conclude this morning's service, we pray that you would have your way with us. Pray that we will have heard your voice this morning from the preaching of the word. We pray that Christ would indeed have spoken to his church. We pray that we would not leave without dealing with you we would seek a blessing. Even now in this closing prayer, we would pray, Lord, give me the blessing. Give me the blessing that I need. I have, I have it objectively. I need it internally. I need it in my heart. I need the personal change to lay hold of all the promises that I know are true. God, I pray that as you do this work in each one of our hearts, that we would be a church indeed that is filled with those who prevail with God and against God, that we would triumph over you, Lord, that you would, in a way, humble yourself and condescend to allow us to extract what we do not deserve, which is the amazing grace, riches, and love of a heavenly Father. And we thank you that this is all possible through Jesus Christ, who died to pay for our sins and to give us access, we ask it in his name. to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.